Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. 23rd of June 2010 was the day that my life changed forever. It was the day that my son, Elijah James Smith, was born. And uh, my wife, Irina, had just been through a very complicated labor. And after 13 hours, she was rushed off to have an emergency C-section. And I was thrown out of the labor room. And I had to wait anxiously outside for the, to see my son. And finally, after waiting a while, he gets wheeled out in this incubator, in this little box. And this is what he looked like. This was the first time I saw my son. And he just looked like this skinned rabbit, you know, just kind of lying there. And I kind of lean over this box and, and this, these feelings just overwhelm me, like this feeling of, of love, like this is my boy, this is my, my son. And uh, after about five minutes, they, they wheel him away to the ward. And then this, this sense, this massive weight of, oh no, responsibility has hit me, like I am responsible for another human being. What happens if I'm a lousy parent? What happens if I get this wrong? And uh, so the very next day, I got to hold him for the first time. And this is, this is me there, holding him for the first time. And you can see, if you look very closely, it's a scientific fact that that's the day I started going gray. And, and you can actually see I started losing hair as well. But holding this little guy was the sense of responsibility. Oh my goodness, I now have a son in my arms. And I I really did think this. I thought, I'm going to drop him. I'm going to drop him. You know how babies have that bobbly head thing? Like, it's just going to fall off or something. I'm going to drop this thing. And, And there was a little voice inside me that was just crying, Help! Help! What do I do? And when you're in trouble, right, when you need help, what do you do? You turn to a great theologian. So I turned to the great theologian, Ray Romano of Everybody Loves Raymond. I mean, this guy, he does the voice for us age. He must know something about parenting. And this is what he said. Everyone should have kids. They are the greatest joy in the world, but they are also terrorists. You realize this as soon as they are born and they start using sleep deprivation to break you. And that's exactly what began happening. So this little voice of, help, I'm raising a terrorist, was, was there. And all these insecurities came out, right? And I thought maybe this is just the adrenaline of having a newborn and these feelings will go away. Um, so anyway, about when my son is about one and a half, two years old, I get home from work, and he's on the carpet, busy playing with his cars. You know, boys play with their cars, boom, boom, boom. Walk over to him, hey, my boy, how are you? And then I said, uh, okay, pack up your cars. He doesn't even look at me. He just goes, no, boom, boom, boom. I said, <clears throat> Elijah, uh, pack up your toys. Boom, 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 no. So like, honey, hun, hun. My wife rushes in. She goes, what's wrong? I said, we've got a problem. What's the matter? I don't think that's my child. It's like, what's the matter? He said no to me. He must be yours. Uh, I couldn't believe it. But again, this feeling of help, help. 
the terrorist is growing up. I need help. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. When you're just like, I'm in trouble with my parenting. And maybe this responsibility is just too big for you. It's just too much to kind of comprehend. And we, we want to hide away from it. We want to run away from it. Or we just ignore it. But we have God's word. And we're in the beautiful letter to the Ephesians, right? And when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, he just spends the first three chapters just massaging the gospel into us. He reminds us who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, that we're a child of God, that, we, that he has redeemed us. And then once we've got that, he begins working out the gospel in everyday life. So last week, Jeff preached a beautiful message on marriage, how the gospel works itself out in marriage. And today we're going to hear about how the gospel works itself out in families. Because God cares about families. He cares about the way families function. Because as we function as a family and as we parent, it reflects God. It reflects His ways. It reflects His character. And the first thing you'll notice when you read the Bible is the Bible doesn't talk about the rights of children or the rights of parents. It talks about the responsibilities of children and the responsibilities of parents. And once you have that framework, this is my responsibility as a child, this is my responsibility as a parent, you then can build a family for God, right? And I believe as we grasp this framework... We will be giving our kids the one thing that is so sorely lacking today, and that is a sense of security. We know that the majority of crimes committed by young people, it goes back to insecurity in the home. They do not feel safe or secure within the family framework. They don't even know what the framework looks like. And that just produces this incredible sense of insecurity in them. And then that works its way out in rebellion. So Paul deals with it. And in four verses, right? Great. Four verses. We're going to be here for five minutes. Paul addresses two people. He addresses children and he addresses fathers. And he says to children... I want to remind you of your responsibility of obedience. And to fathers, I want to remind you of your responsibility of leadership that you are to exercise. So the first people Paul addresses are children. So I've lost my audience, right? They kind of left the auditorium a while ago, but I, I haven't really lost my audience, right? Because we might not all have biological children. We might not all be fathers yet, but we are the church. We are the family of God. All of us should have a concern about how the children of City Reach are going, how they're being brought up. All of us should be involved in some way. If we think about it as a large family gathering, right? You've got a large family gathering, you've got all your nieces and nephews, your cousins, your aunties and uncles, and you see the kids and they are misbehaving. You do something about it. Maybe it's directing them back towards their parents, but you do something about it. You get involved. That's what we are. We're a family. 
We should all be a community that's encouraging our fathers to be godly dads, right? So you might not all have children, we might not all be dads, but Paul is addressing every single one of us this morning. You see, I was, I was one of those kids that someone took an active interest in me and was concerned about me. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was very young, and we, my sister and I, we lived with my mom, and she worked very hard as a nurse to provide for my sister and I. And one day, uh, my sister was invited to a birthday party from another girl in her class, and we went along uh, to drop her off. And when we dropped her off, we found out they had three sons, similar in my age, and they said, would you like to stay as well? Now, we joke that that's the day I stayed and never left. Uh, so this family, right, a couple by the name of Gary and Heather Cook. Uh, he was a banana farmer, and he was also a lay Methodist preacher. And they just kind of took me in as the fifth child in their family, right? So I spent all my, weeks on the, all my weekends on the farm. When uh, my mother was, was working night duty, I'd stay over during the week. I'd go to church with them on the weekends. They even took me on holiday with them. I literally just became their fifth child. I have so much respect for them. But they got this idea that it's not just about me and my tribe. It's about the family of God. Huge influence in my life. Huge influence in my life. So here Paul goes. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So straight away, Paul tells them what to do and why we need to do it. And he tells kids this horrible four-letter word, which they hate hearing. And if we're honest, as adults, we don't really like it much ourselves. And it's this word, obey, obey. So someone I admire is this guy by the name of Paul Tripp. So this is Paul Tripp. And uh, I think the reason I like Paul Tripp so much is his moustache. He's got an awesome moustache. Apparently, there's a Twitter account just, voted, just devoted to Paul Tripp's moustache. And anyway, this is what he had to say on what obedience looks like. He said, Obeying parents is willing submission to authority without delay, without excuse, or without challenge. But I can claim that my under-13 cricket coach came up with this definition first. Uh, I went to an all-boys school that was very big on sport. And we had just played our biggest rivals, and we lost. And it, my coach was mad. And it wasn't the fact that we lost that he was mad about. It was the fact that we had about five or six runouts during the game. So Monday afternoon, cricket practice comes around, and our coach sits us down, and he lets us have it. He says, listen, when you run between the wickets, there are only three things you hear. Yes, no, and wait. If you hear yes... You run. You do not delay. You do not negotiate. You do not argue. You run. If you hear no, you don't run. There's no negotiation. There's no challenge. You don't run. And if you hear wait, you don't speak. You wait to hear either yes or no. And if you should decide to challenge and negotiate or hesitate, you will be in trouble. You will get run out, and you will be responsible to the team. Now, I didn't know it then, 
But he was giving us this lesson in true obedience, what obedience looks like. And the amazing thing is I don't think we had another run out the whole season. We lost lots of games because we were too afraid to take a run after that. But we never had another run out. And, uh, but I don't know about you, right? But when I parent and I call my children to obey, I always feel like it's with delay, with excuse, and with a challenge. So TV in our house. Irina and I, we uh, usually set a time limit when watching TV. Like you have half an hour to watch TV. And then after about 30 minutes, I come in and I say, all right, guys, time to turn off the TV. And what I want to hear is, yes, Dad. Instead, what I hear is five more minutes. It's not fair. She watched two programs. I only watched one. It's not fair. And, and suddenly I feel like I'm involved in this negotiation of like a political release of a prisoner, right? Like I'm negotiating with these, these two terrorists. And this, eventually the TV gets turned off. But there's been this battle that's taken place. And that is not true obedience. But what's the big deal? You're thinking, okay, really... Graham, chill out a little bit here. So what if it takes a little bit longer? What's the big deal? The big deal is the heart condition of resisting authority. It's rebelling against that authority. Now you can imagine this, right? It's as if the Apostle Paul was giving this part of his message and there were kids in the room. He would call them in closer. Now listen to this part, guys. Listen to this part. Why should you obey your parents? Why do you obey your parents? Listen in. There's only one reason. Because it is right. Because it is right. Doesn't say because it pays. May pay, may not pay. That's not important. The only thing is because it is right. Not because someone's watching you. Not because you get something but because it is right. And Paul then emphasizes this. He explains it a little bit more, like this is what it means. And he, and he pulls out the Old Testament, and he quotes from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. He said, Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and that you may live a long life in the land. You see, God's will for children is not only that they should obey, but that they should obey willingly and honorably. Because kids have a choice, right? They can obey very reluctantly. Clenched teeth, my heart's not in it, but I'll obey because maybe you're a little bit bigger than me and I don't want to argue with you. Or children can obey because they honor their mom and their dad. They honor their mom and dad as wiser people as those who have seen more of life than them, that those that know you better than most people do. That's a different kind of obedience. That's an obedience of the heart. Understanding that we respect the God-given position parents have. We respect them for their age and their wisdom and their advice. That is... Obedience with 
reverence, right? It's doing, it's doing the will of your parents because you look up to them. You don't look down on them. You look up to them. Honor, to honor someone means to look up to them, to look up to them. And so God thought that this commandment was so important that out of all the other Ten Commandments, the only one that has a promise attached to it. And the promise is this, right? That you would go well with you and that you would have a long life in the land. Now, originally, that promise was for Israel. And Israel had this understanding. God is our king, right? He's given us the land of Israel. He set up this idea that parents have the responsibility and the authority over their children. And if the children submitted and they obeyed with reverence their parents, it would go well with them and they would live a long life, a life of quality and quantity in the land of Israel. But there's a flip side to that. If you disrespect your parents, it would lead to a disrespect of authority and ultimately it would lead to a disrespect for God. Like we know, right? The building blocks of society are the family. And when we have respect for our parents, it will lead to a respect for authority and ultimately it's a respect for God. But when that's not true, right, we see that worked out in society. When there is a loss of respect for authority. So Paul says, this promise is repeated for you. It's in the New Testament. It is for followers of Jesus as well. And here's the simple thing. That if you do this, if there is a heart change in you with your obedience and it comes with reverence, it will go better with you. You will have a long life of quality and quantity. There will be peace. There will be order. And there will be blessings. You see, what my cricket coach and Paul is saying here is very simply, if you obey, there will be blessings. There is peace. But if you disobey, you get run out. You get run out. There's chaos and there's disorder and there's destruction waiting for you. You know, and God's word is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? We can see the promise worked out today. We look at families where there's this respect and love for their parents. It goes well with them. And we look out at society and we can kind of see where that's not true, what it leads to. Now, we can sit here and we can have this, yes, it's all on our kids. My goodness, the thing they need to get right is this obedience with reverence. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He tells us there's something more involved, fathers, right? If we are to expect this kind of obedience from our children, we need to give them the kind of leadership that God wants us to have. And we are to exercise that leadership. So this is what Paul says, right? In verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing that stands out to me is he doesn't say, 
fathers and mothers. He just addresses fathers. So why does God particularly address fathers? One, it's because I think moms do a great job. But two, he's telling us something, right? And earlier in Ephesians, he told us the husband is the head of the wife. He's the head of the family. And the standards of discipline and behavior are to rest with him. And I think there's an incredible burden on moms where they have to carry this. They have to be the one who make all the decisions about discipline and instruction in their households. And I have a real heart for single mothers. I grew up in a single parent family. I know what it's like for moms to take on this role. But there's another reason, right? Is that dads matter. Their presence matter. This is statistics about Australia. One out of three children in Australia live without their biological father. 90% of homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. 85% of youths in prison come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. When a father is absent, it shows greater rates of depression, greater rates of divorce, greater rates of substance abuse, decreased rates of educational performance, and the list goes on. Guys, I don't know about you, but when someone quotes statistics at me, I'm usually shocked for about 10 seconds, and then I forget. But here's the point, right? So there was a youth worker working in the Bronx in New York City. And he was in a really rough part of New York, working with some really rough families. And um, he had just been called down to the police station to give account of, uh, of something that young people had done yet again. And he was there to speak on their behalf. And he gets there and he's very discouraged because this is happening all the time. And anyway, there are three other young guys that come down with him. And he's walking back home with them, feeling quite down about, about his year's work there. And he looks at these three guys, and he, says like, he asks them this question, like, what's, what's different about you guys? Right? You guys live in the same neighborhood. You have the same friends. You have the same economic background. But you're never in trouble. I never get called down to the police station to, to, to talk on your behalf. What's the difference, guys? And they all said exactly the same thing. My dad's at home. My dad's at home. Guys, fathers make a difference. They do. But Paul says to us, the very first thing you do is he tells us something not to do. And literally, it says, do not prick your children. That's the literal word there, right? Do not provoke them to anger. Do not irritate them. Do not prick them. So in the Middle East, when a farmer was plowing, You'd have a long stick, and at the end of the stick, there'd be a spark on it. And when the oxen were getting tired from plowing, you just give them a little prick. And it worked, right? A little prick every now and then kept them going. And Paul says, that's not the way to do it, guys. That's not the way to parent. If you do that right, the constant pricking and prodding children from behind, that's not godly fathering. Paul goes on to say in Colossians, he says this, he says, uh, if you do that, if you provoke and you prick, you're going to discourage your kids. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. 
I think it's one of the most terrible things we can do to our kids is when we discourage them. To encourage someone means to put courage into them. You encourage them to stand strong. You encourage them to make a difference. You encourage them to stand for Jesus and live out their faith. You put courage into them. To discourage a child is to take courage out of them. So how do we provoke our children? How do we prick our kids? I can think of at least three ways. And the first way is just an over-strict household, a legalistic home, right, where it's rules, 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 rules without a relationship. It uh, reminds me of the story of uh, a little boy who goes to school on his first day, and the teacher asks him, what's your name? And he says, Johnny, don't. The teacher gets this confused look. He says, what do you mean, Johnny, don't? Well, that's what dad calls me. Johnny, don't. Johnny, don't. Johnny, don't. You get the point, right? A second way that we provoke our kids is constant criticism, constant provoking. Criticism can be very discouraging for kids. And you notice when you're being discouraging, when you start critical is when you start using language like, you always, you never, you always, you never, your sister is amazing, but you never, very discouraging for kids. And I think the last one, and this is probably the most important one of all, how we provoke our kids is hypocrisy, right? Because our kids see us in public and they see us in private, and if those two don't match up, it gives the game away, right? You can't pull the wool over our kids' eyes. They see it, and it's very provoking for them. Why does dad behave this way in public, and then he's different when he's at home? Or another way that we can be hypocritical is when we demand repentance from our kids. You did wrong. You must repent. You must say sorry. But we never ask our kids for forgiveness, Guys, as parents, there are going to be times where we blow it. We do the wrong thing. Are we humble enough to go to our kids and say, you know what, in that moment, I blew it. I did the wrong thing. Will you forgive me? Guys, when was the last time you said sorry to your kids? When you blew it? Guys, don't prick your children. It just builds up this resentment, right? And you prick, prick, prick. It builds up resentment, builds up resentment until that safety valve bursts. And you have them turn around and look at you and suddenly you find this child shouting and defying you and you're like, well, what, what just happened? But it's years of pricking and pricking and pricking. Paul says don't avoid that pitfall. By all, all means, avoid that. We don't do that. But he doesn't just leave us there, right? He says, this is the how you are to do it. You are to discipline with instruction. Paul says it like this. Bring them up in discipline and instruction. Those two words go together. So if you look at those two words, discipline means to deal with the action, what they did, what the sin was. Instruction means to deal with it in word, to deal with it at a heart level. You instruct them at a heart level. I know very often as a, as a human dad, 
I often discipline my kids because I'm working off my own emotions. You see, I've got, I've got selfish motives in my own heart very often. Uh, sometimes I have this fear of being embarrassed in public, right? The way my kids are behaving. So at, pri- at home, in private, yeah, they can do that. doesn't bother me at all. But suddenly when public, they do that. Oh, guys, and I discipline them. But essentially, it's selfish motives because I'm disciplining out of them my own fear. Another one is this desire for a quiet life. Like, I just want my peace. I want my time. And right now, you're irritating me, so I have to discipline you. So uh, the other night, this was about two weeks ago, we're having a family devotional. And uh, it's bedtime, and uh, it's about 10 past 8 now, 10 minutes past, we're supposed to go to bed, and I've got squash on at 8.30. This is my time, my one time in the week where I get to go out and enjoy something that I want to do. And my kids choose this very night to be a little bit silly. Right? And we often get silly when we do a devotion. We act out the Bible and we talk about it. But tonight, it's irritating me. Because I want to go and play squash. I want the quiet life. So anyway, it gets to this point, they're being silly. Uh, eventually, I take the Bible, close it and go, right, no Bible story for you tonight. And I get up and I walk off to the bedroom and I'm putting on all my squash gear. And I look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, you're ridiculous. Right, you're ridiculous. It's just a desire for a quiet life. You know what the thing is? God never, never does that. He's not like that in any way. When he disciplines us, it's for our good. It's out of his intentions to share in his holiness. Another word for discipline can be to train. And when you know when you train, there is an element of pain in there. It hurts, right? Discipline hurts. But it's always with the intention that you love that child, that you want them. So discipline is good. It's there. God disciplines us because he loves us. But he doesn't leave us there. He instructs us as well. The worst thing you can do is punish a child and not explain why. You just leave them in the situation of kind of pain and resentment. And that's a terrible place to leave them. So when we instruct, we are talking to the heart issue. The heart issue. So a certain child, she shall be remain nameless, but a certain child started school at the beginning of this year. She started reception, and this certain child loves stationery. I don't know why, but she loves stationery. And anyway, she went to school, and on about day three, she comes back from school, and my wife's checking her bag, and in her bag is stationery, but it's not hers. It belongs to the school. It's got the school's name all over it. So there has to be this moment of discipline. This is wrong, right? We, we discipline that moment, but then comes the moment of instruction, pointing it back to the heart condition. Why did you do that? What was going on in your heart? Because it was motivated by greed, coveting. And when you're five years old, greed and coveting might look like nice stationery. But what does that lead to if you keep giving in to this sin? 
Instruction points to the heart. Guys, as we looked at God's word, I can't help but thinking that the Lord is reminding us this morning of our responsibility that we have to exercise the leadership that he's given us. But I know that within myself, I can shrink back from that responsibility because I know of the own anger and selfishness that's in my heart and I know how that spoils discipline. I know that I discipline when I'm annoyed. Not always for the good of the child, but for my good and my peace. And I know that I can abuse this responsibility so easy that I can shrink back from it. I just ignore it, pretend it's not there, or I outsource it to my wife. Or otherwise, knowing how often we sin in our own life, we kind of overlook sin in theirs. And we go like, well, you know, I was a lot worse than they were. I've done a lot worse things than they have. So let's just overlook it this time. And that's not what God's called us to. He's called us to be responsible. But you know what I love? I love that God not only gives us this beautiful plan, he lays it out nice and plain for us to see, but he doesn't say, there's the plan, there's the routine, you go for it. No, the Lord himself helps us. The Lord himself helps us. As Gary so beautifully shared this morning about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us. If we look in the passage, this is what it says. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents, discipline your children with the instruction of the Lord. That's the key. The Lord has to be involved in it. That's the real answer. It must be done with His help and for His glory. Now, if we, if we listen to this and we think, well, you know, it's just about kids and it's about dads, we've missed something here because the Lord is showing us something about who He is and who you are. You see, this morning we sung, I'm a child of God. You're a child and he is your father. How we respond to God shows what we really think about him. So guys, how's, how's our obedience? When we, when we read this word and the Holy Spirit convicts us of something in our lives that's not right, something we need help with, How's our obedience? Do we delay? Do we offer an excuse? Do we challenge it? Or do we obey with reverence? You see, because the real question is, when we challenge that, what we're really asking is, do I believe God is really good? Do I believe that living under His kingdom and His rule and His righteousness is right. Guys, he is a God who's worthy of honor and respect. He's a God who is a father. But he's unlike us because he's not, he never provokes us to anger. God is not a father who pricks, pricks, pricks. He's not like that. He never disciplines us out of selfish motives. Because he loves us with a pure love. He's not conflicted in any way. 
His purpose in discipline is good, and He instructs us in the way that we should go. And He wants us to mold us to be like His Son. God is not an absent father. He's right there. He's right there. And you know, guys, your kids don't need perfect parents because they already have a perfect Savior. And our job is to point them to that perfect Savior, to show our kids that He is our perfect Savior too. That He is loving, that He is kind, and that He can be trusted. You know, uh, we've been here now seven months in Adelaide, and we, we're loving the city, and we love you guys. Honestly, we have been welcomed with such open arms. Like, really, I just want to say that we love you guys and appreciate you so much. And there's so much we want to do and love you guys back. But there's one thing I will never do for you, and that is sacrifice my kids. But when I look at God, you know, you're nice people. But God sacrificed his son for us. When we were at our worst, when we were at our worst, he gave us his son, Jesus. How much more will he not give us all things? So in our parenting and as a child and as fathers and mothers, as we do this, he will give us all things. Let's cry out to him. We're going to worship now. And what I want us to focus on is that God is a father and he is there for you. And in your moment of need, cry out to him. Cry out to him in your parenting. Cry out to him as parents, as children, because he's there and he listens and he loves you.